Today we're in week four of our series, um, Hostage. Um, talking about addiction. Let me give you some numbers. Every second, second, not minute, 28,250 people are looking at pornography online. 28,000. Every second, $89,000 is spent downloading pornography from the internet. 89 every second. 60% of women in America are addicted to lust. Average family, and I thought this was low, has over $8,000 in credit card debt. The average family. 50% of men, that's one out of two men, are addicted to pornography. One out of every eight struggle with alcohol addiction. 63% of men and women in America are overweight. I'd say that number's low too. And I'm talking about myself. So, 49% of marriages end in divorce. That's not a world number. That's a church number. Same, same. Kids here watch a minimum or on average four hours of television a day. We are raising a generation to be addicts. Uh, I did not feel the need to put up the stats uh, for opioid drug addiction because I know this over 90 plus percent of the people in this room have felt the sting of drug addiction if you're from this area at all. Truth is this though, we are an addicted society. Um, addicted to work, addicted to food, addicted to video games, addicted to entertainment. So, so what is addiction when we talk about addiction? Uh, I, I want to give us a scripture, give you a scripture to maybe be, help understand when we talk about addiction, what it is. And I do not know where the clicker is, so you may have to stand with me. Someone lost my clicker. Wait, it's over here on Bob's stand. Bob. 2 Corinthians, and we're going to come back to this scripture. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish what? Come on, say it. Demolish what? Strongholds. The Greek word there for strongholds is akurama. And what it means, a definition is a castle, stronghold, a fortress, anything on one which relies. One commentary read, I said, said, here is the best definition of a stronghold. A stronghold is a faulty thinking pattern based upon lies and deception. Isn't that what addiction is at the core? Lies and deception. Lies and deception that this will make things better. Lies and deception that I will never break free from this. Lies and deception as this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always going to be. Why even try? Come on. So basically put, addiction is a stronghold in your life. And these strongholds get built based upon these false thinking patterns uh, that are based upon lies. Where do lies come from? 
the father of lies. Father of lies. So if a stronghold is based upon lies and we get those lies built into us to change our thinking, well, then where do those lies come from? The enemy. The enemy. Uh, so so if, if those strongholds and addiction are built upon lies that we've come to believe, then what we've got to do is expose those lies. We've got to expose them and replace them with a truth. But here's the problem when we talk about addiction. Here's what comes to 90% of people's minds. Oh, Kelly, get them. Get those bunch of addicted people. And what the sad thing is, we assume this is what addiction looks like. How many know someone that their life has been devastated by? someone's addiction how many know someone that is addicted to pills to opioids to alcohol here's what i know there are those in here today you know you know it you can name it you know your addiction and there are others in here that are addicted and you don't know it or you just choose to not acknowledge it because in your mind you've been trained this is what addiction looks like this is what it looks like we see that picture and we're like, I can't stand addiction, Kelly. Can't stand it. But the problem with that is this. So many people, in, even in this room, you've bought into the lie that this is just part of my culture. It's the world we're living in today. This is the way I was raised in the South. This is the way we do things. This is the way my family's done it. And so what happens is those lies get embedded into us and they become a stronghold or an addiction. So we point our fingers at pills. We point our fingers at pornography. We point our fingers at alcohol, at dope. What about caffeine? Yeah, I went there. What about, oh, let's go a little deeper. What about food? Dang, Kelly, I wish you'd just talk about drugs. <laughs> I'd rather hear you talk about sex or money. Get off food now. <laughs> what about shopping online? My kids gave me a hard time last year. I realized I spent way too much time on Amazon when the UPS guy knew my name. <laughs> what about working out? Some of you are like, <laughs> who would be so stupid to be addicted? I'll just say this. The two people that I know that may be addicted to working out, both of them are named Ben. That's all I know. Both of them are named Ben. So I wish that was my addiction. Come on now. Oh, I just can't run enough. Whoa. <laughs> oh, let's go a little deeper. What about... What about smoking, dipping? What about technology? Computer, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, your phone. Can't even go to the bathroom without it. First thing you look at when you wake up in the morning, the last thing you look at before you go to bed at night. What about this? Addiction to approval. Like me. I'll say whatever I need to. Do whatever I need to. Just like me. What about this one? Gossip. 
And I want it like when we get some news, some bad news, it burns like a drug through our veins just wanting to tell somebody. Come on now. Because here's the truth. We're all addicts to something. We've all got something we're wrestling with. We've all got something. And what happens, that addiction becomes a stronghold that now controls their lives. Here's one of the things I love about the Bible. See, the Bible doesn't just say, hey, here's how to live. Uh, figure it out yourself. Good luck. Go, go with it. Be holy. Oh, I'm not going to tell you how. Just be holy. No, the, the Bible is very honest about our heroes in the faith and how they struggle with sin and different things in their life. Paul. A guy that wrote a third of the New Testament is very honest about his struggle. In fact, let's turn, turn with me to Romans 7 if you've got a Bible. If not, I'm going to bring it up on the screen. Look what he says in Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 14. He said this, so the trouble is not with the law for it's spiritual and good. Look what he says. The trouble is with me. Trouble's right here. It's with me, for I am all too human. I'm a slave to sin. Paul? Paul is all too human? He says, I don't really understand myself. For what I want to do, I, I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. Then in verse 18, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. The Passion Translation says it like this. It says, the longings to, do, longings to do what is right are within me, but I come to find out willpower, willpower is not enough to accomplish it. Can anybody relate? I want to do right. I want to stay away from that. But man, I've dealt with enough addicts and addiction in my life, including myself. Come to find out that is the epitome of an addict. No addict wakes up and says, you know what, today, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set out to destroy my life. I'm going to set out to ruin my family. I'm going to go rob from my kids to feed my addiction. No. They, they, they don't do that. It's, man, I want to quit. I want to stop this. I, want, I don't want to do this. But look, what, look what Paul says. Let's, let's go on. I want to get ahead of myself. He says, I've discovered this principle of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. Paul says, I, I'm not a bad person. I love God. I really do. But I see another law. I see another law at work in me. Waging war against the law of my what? mine and making me a prisoner, making me a hostage of the law of sin that has worked within me. And every addict has had this moment in their life. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am. Maybe another way to put it, I don't like what I've become. I hate seeing myself in the mirror. I don't like what this has done to me. What a miserable person I am. I mean, think about that for a moment. Well, what is it in your life that during the moment you enjoy it? During the moment it feeds that drive. But when it's over, you're like, what a miserable person I am. I hate what I've become. I hate what I'm doing. I hate looking at me in the mirror. What is it? 
What is it that I hate it, but I keep wanting coming back for more? Check out. I struggled with addiction for years. And when I hit bottom, I just kept on digging, drowning myself in booze and self-pity. Addiction to me was like a vicious cycle. The more I messed up, the more I would have to use and drink to blot out my situation. In turn, I caused more damage and had to numb myself more to not feel the shame and despair. I did not start out with a childhood dream to become a homeless junkie. Frequenting the jails, that was not my dream. I wanted to be an artist, and I was drawing and painting at a young age. I was raised by good parents, went to church every Sunday. I had everything I needed and almost everything I wanted, but something was always missing. I never felt like I fit in, and I was quiet and shy. When I got to middle school, I was so worried what people thought about me and so caught up in my head that instead of turning to Jesus, I turned to alcohol. It was instant relief. Suddenly everything was right in the world and I could talk to people and be the life of the party. It quickly progressed from alcohol to pot, then acid, then cocaine. The people I was hanging around got shadier and shadier and even stole from me when I passed out. I swore I would never smoke crack or shoot up or steal from people. I was just a nice girl who liked to party. Soon my parents started sending me to rehabs and trying to ground me, but I just started running away because I didn't like their rules. I stole their car and came to Tennessee from Florida, got caught, and had to go to juvenile detention in Knoxville. I turned 17 and they kind of gave up on me and just let me run away because they didn't know what to do with me. I kept getting worse, but I couldn't really use cocaine that much because I couldn't afford it. I found out I was pregnant at 18. The father took off to New Jersey and I was alone. Of course, my mom said I could move back in and she said she would help me with the baby. I received a settlement at age 19 right after giving birth to my daughter. This money gave me the means to buy cocaine in large amounts. My plan was to sell it, get enough to get high on for free. That didn't work out too well. I started leaving my baby with my parents for days, going on sprees with no sleep. I became a daily user and my parents asked me to leave. I would try to come back home and straighten out, but I would not last that long. One of those times I came back home, my mom was having headaches and went to the doctor for a brain scan. We found out that she had an aggressive form of brain cancer. They removed the tumor and it grew right back. Then the tumor spread to her brainstem where they could no longer operate. She went from being a sweet, funny, loving angel to a vegetable in a few months before my eyes. My grandma was coming over and helping with her because she could no longer walk, talk, or feed herself. I would leave and get wasted and stay gone for days or weeks. She passed away when I was 22, and I really went off the deep end and started doing all those things I swore I would never do. I started smoking crack and stealing, going to jail regularly. My dad had to take custody of my daughter. I just used this as an excuse to feel sorry for myself and get worse. As I got worse, I just surrounded myself with worse people, so then everything I was doing seemed normal. I knew all the guards in jail, and they knew me by name as well. My friends were all in jail, so it started to become normal to go to jail. I lived in scummy motels, trap houses, and jails for four years. I overdosed several times and was disappointed to still be alive when I woke up. I went to more rehabs that were court-ordered over the years, and I was in this 30-day rehab in December, and I really wanted to quit drugs, but I ignored the AA meetings because I just didn't see that I was an alcoholic. It was New Year's Eve, and this guy was having his girlfriend sneak him in some beer at visitation. 
He asked if I wanted to drink in the woods with him. Of course. Then I saw him asking a couple more people to join, and I got mad at him because there wouldn't be enough. I proceeded to chug five beers out of that 12-pack and then tip up the vodka bottle in the woods, hogging most of the alcohol. The plan to go to our rooms and sleep did not play out for me. I woke up the beast, and I fled the rehab in order to keep drinking that night. Then I got money and got high for four more days and was arrested. I went to jail relieved this time. The party was over. I'd become a crying or angry drunk, the worst kind. That night I'd been crying over a plate full of crack in the motel before I got arrested, just hoping that this time it would kill me. This was my bottom. That was January 5th, 2001. That night in jail I cried out, please God, do something with me. I can't do this anymore. I was facing prison for violating my probation by leaving the rehab, but I was honest with the judge and he sentenced me to a six month treatment center instead. I was so scared of being sober and facing all the damage I did all that guilt and shame, grieving for my mother, and tried to make things right with my family. I had to get a job and pay probation. I didn't see a way to do this, but God had a different plan. He surrounded me with women who had recovered and who picked me up from treatment and took me to meetings. They taught me to rely on God, and I learned the power of prayer works when I had cravings. They took me through the steps, which helped me to get bitterness and shame out that had been blocking me from God. They loved me until I could love myself. They taught me how to be a good employee, a good daughter, a good friend, and eventually a good mother and wife when I got custody of my daughter back and married Danny. My sobriety date is January 6, 2001, and I will never forget that day. I have 18 years clean and sober. I've had a second chance at life. And I help other addicts and alcoholics because it brings me joy, it is my unique contribution, and it keeps me sober. Recovery is a lifelong process. I may have been delivered from cravings of drugs and alcohol, but I have this addictive personality that easily gets addicted to anything that makes me feel good. If I don't continue to grow and continue to serve, helping others is a small price to pay for what I've been blessed with. Whatever addiction you are struggling with, God has a plan for you, and he can use it for good. Alcoholics and addicts who have recovered are sometimes the only people who can help other alcoholics and addicts. My greatest weakness has become my greatest asset through Christ. I'm not ashamed to be an addict and alcoholic. I've been redeemed, just like my life verse says. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Amen. Amen. Uh, real quick, Danny, Melody, stand up for me. Melody, 18 years sober. Danny, how long? 16. These two guys right here are over... Uh, along with Josh, are over our Project 836 Celebrate Recovery Ministry uh, that we have relaunched and revamping. If you want to be part of God changing some lives in a community that needs it, you need to come out for these training sessions that are on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. You may be able to come out this, but after this, they're going to be so into it that they won't be able to take anyone new right now until we actually kick it off. Thank you, guys. Thank you. 
Addiction. Strongholds. Strongholds are built upon lies. Lies. You heard some of the lies that, that the enemy told Melody in, in her testimony. So I want to expose some of those lies and then replace them with the truth. One of the lies that I believe, one of the biggest lies I believe the enemy comes at us with to develop a stronghold. If you're taking notes, and I know I, I overloaded you with notes today, but I really want some of you, you need to get this in you, is this one. Your addiction is your identity. This is who you are. This is, you're, you're an addict. You'll always be a drug addict. You'll always be an alcoholic. This is who you are. Can I tell you, I, I don't believe that. I believe that when Jesus sets you free, that he no longer sees you as addict. He sees you as beloved. He sees you as a son or daughter. And get this, not only does he not see you as an addict, he sees you as the person he created you to be. That's good news if you don't know it. And you, you want, I you, when God looks at you, he, he sees your potential. He sees who he created you to be. He, he doesn't see you as that. Let's go on. I'm getting ahead of myself. The second lie is this. Oh, there's no hope of this ever changing. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried and nothing has changed. Maybe you're even sitting here and you're thinking, PK, I've tried the things you've told me to try. Nothing is helping. I've been, how many rehabs did you say you've been to? Eight. My brother probably that and more. Now two years sober. But I've tried. I went to rehab. I went to programs. Kelly, it just, I'm past, I'm hopeless. Nothing is ever going to change. I'm here to tell you today that's a lie. That my God is bigger, my God is stronger, my God is more powerful than any stronghold or addiction in your life. That's a lie. The third lie the enemy loves to get us to buy into. Any threat to my addiction is a threat against me. In other words, here's what that looks like. You get approached about your addiction and you become very defensive about it. Hey, I can quit anytime I want to quit. You got no business talking to me about this. In fact, they'll start pointing out your faults. And they get because they feel like a threat against that addiction, a threat against that stronghold is a threat against them. And that's what the enemy wants you to believe. It, it, it doesn't have control over me. I, I can quit any time I want to. But here's a fact. You will never completely break free until you own and acknowledge that he has more power over you than you care to admit. I'm telling you guys. And you also need to realize this. Those people that are coming to you, church family, family family, friends, co-workers, they're not against you. They're for you. They're for you. The fourth lie that the enemy loves to tell us. You're past the point of no return. You've gone too far. You've done too much. You've left too, too, too many casualties in your wake. You've hurt too many people, done too many people wrong. Let, let me tell you, that's a lie. As long as you are breathing, as long as there are breath, there's breath in your lungs, you are not hopeless. You are not past the point of no return. 
He can redeem. I'm telling you, I'm a big believer that God can do more with the latter part of your life than he did with the first part of it. I'm a big believer that God is more interested in your future than he is in your past. I'm telling you, you're not past the point. The fifth lie. Oh, another fix will stop the pain. Another click will stop the pain. Another text message will stop the pain. Another needle, another line will stop the pain. And it doesn't stop the pain. All it does is mask the pain. It numbs it. And then what happens is the shame that you felt for doing what you were doing in the first place, and you say this will take care of it, all you do is heap more shame upon more shame upon more shame on your life. And that's what the enemy loves to do. He loves to get you in that cycle where now you're just overloaded with shame and regret. So what do we do, Kelly? How do we break free from a stronghold, from an addiction? Paul, in his honesty, says this. Let's revisit. He says, what a miserable person I am. Paul says, I don't like this. Who will set me free from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I've tried everything. Paul knows what you're talking about. I've tried everything. And then Paul answers himself. You ever ask yourself a question and then answer it yourself? They, t they say that's insanity. I'm, I'm probably crazy. Paul answers himself. Look what he says. He says, the answer thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and he does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Paul says, hey, hey, here's what I know. Jesus Christ can and Jesus Christ does. In a, because of what he did, he acted so that I could be set free. But he says, he says, it's a life of contradiction where I want to do what's right. But the influence of sin pulls me back in. Can anybody relate to that? Come on, come on. It's all right to be honest in church. I know we're supposed to all put on our halos, act like we got our stuff together. But it's all right. And if you won't say it, I'll tell you, I'm just as jacked up as most of y'all are. Well, not some of you. Some of you are, whoa. <laughs> no. But I can relate to Paul. Paul said, I want to serve God with all my heart, my mind, but I keep getting pulled back. I think everyone in this room can relate, whether it's the influence of, of, of your attitude, your, your temper, alcohol, dough, pills, food, you name it. You want to serve God, but the influence of that thing keeps pulling you back. I love what Paul says next. And you got to understand, because Paul goes through this in verse 25 of chapter 7. And what he says in chapter 8, verse 1, you, you need to understand, God didn't put the chapters in there. Man did. So, you, so we got to read these together. Paul says, hey, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and he does. He acted to set things right in a life of contradictions where I want to serve God with my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Then Paul says this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says there's now what? No condemnation. 
No condemnation. Can I tell you, that's the environment. That is the atmosphere I want here at Watsmart Church. I want the atmosphere where an addict can walk in. Someone that is just, you, we would feed them, and, and they would never know it because we love on them. We accept them to the extent where they say, no condemnation? Is this church? Well, it's the church the way God intended it. Because I love it when people are real. I'm, I, y'all have heard me say this. Most of the time I won't tell people right off the bat when they meet me that I'm a pastor. Because I want them to be real around me. Because I'm real. And, and I, I'm very honest. But I, I, I want this place to be a me too place. Oh, you struggle? Man, me too. And God did this in my life. Oh, your marriage is struggling? Man, I was at a place like that too. I, 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 I can relate to you totally. Oh, man, you're I, absolutely... I'm telling you guys, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's what that means. That means you're never going to approach God and God look at you and say, you're a mess. Go clean yourself up, then come back. Never. When you approach God, he doesn't see that. He sees you for the person he created you to be. He sees you. Y'all have heard me say this before, and I'll keep saying it. You have never locked eyes with anyone that does not matter to the heart of God. Ever. Ever. I'm telling you. uh, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, there's now no condemnation. Check it out. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has done what? Set you free. Set you free. A couple of things about addiction. 99.9% of addictions are rooted in what I'm, the word I'm about to tell you. Some of you may get offended. Some may be like, what? No way. But I'm going to tell you, addiction is rooted in idolatry. <laughs> idolatry. If you don't fully understand what that means, I'm not talking about you building your little having your little Buddha or little God that you've set up there and you worship. Here's what idolatry, here's a great definition of idolatry. Idolatry is anything we allow to sit on the throne of our hearts other than God. Other than God. Every time you have that unhealthy relationship with that thing, whether it's food or whether it's alcohol, you're giving that thing place in your life to control you. Are you with me? We, we, he, we, we always, we, listen, we're always going to be a slave to whatever is on the throne of our heart. Whatever's there, that's the master we're going to serve. That, that's who we're going to serve. So let me give you some keys to breaking free from addiction. First thing is this. You've got to do this. You've got to settle the issue of who is king of your heart. That's the first, you got to settle that issue right there. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for recovery programs. You heard me announce ours, but I'm convinced of this. You will never truly be successful in your recovery until you determine who is the king of my heart. Who sits there on the throne of my heart? And, and you, you'll be like the writer of Ecclesiastes that said this. He said, listen, in my life, I des- denied myself no pleasure. If I thought it would make me feel good, I did it. I went for it. But then when I stood back and looked around, I said, all of this is meaningless. Meaningless. And I'm telling you, 
Until you set, solve the issue of who's king of your heart, you'll get frustrated, you'll get mad, you'll get aggravated, everything will seem meaningless until you finally dethrone the God of addiction, whatever it's to, and put Jesus there in its place. Tell me, once you settle the issue, second thing you got to do this is this. You want to break free? You want to quit being a hostage to addiction? Fight for your freedom. I would, I would love to say, hey, if you're addicted, if you got an addiction to me, kind of raise your hand. I'm going to lay hands on you and bam, you're going to be free. I've seen it happen, but I'm going to say nine times out of ten, you got to fight for it. You got to fight for it. And, and, and this is no other. You're going to have to fight for your freedom. And make, no, make no mistake, addiction, man, of every kind is an all-out assault on our communities, on us, on our families, on our schools, on our, on our business. The enemy, it's laid out what he wants. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And that's what he wants to do with addiction. He, he wants to steal from you your future. He wants to kill your dreams. And he wants to destroy the impact you can have for the kingdom of God. One of the ways he does that, he, lo he loves isolation. Get you alone. He wants, you, wants to give you just enough to keep you coming back from more. We've talked about this before. Very rarely do you see somebody make a decision to buy one of those, something off one of those infomercials when they're surrounded by a bunch of friends. It's usually 1 o'clock in the morning, and that infomercial comes on. Well, I could use that. <laughs> Isolation, and that's where the enemy gets us. When we're not surrounded by the right people that can say, listen, the last thing you need is uh, another deep-fry airless cooker. <laughs> Come on. Look at you. You're not you, somebody. I just, I just hear. I can see people going. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey, listen. I'm just a prophet. I'm just. That's all. I know. <laughs> but he loves. He loves placing things out in front of you. You'll be at home. A new credit. Oh man, a new credit card. This will take care of the problems. Oh, oh let me, let me, let, let me get a, uh, an, another plate of food. That'll. Fill the void. That'll stop it. Oh, a pop-up for the new porn site on my computer. Oh, a pill that was left out on the counter. Or you discover a stash of alcohol that you used to hide. And the enemy puts them there. For when you're alone, he keeps left. See, here's the enemy. He's smart. The enemy doesn't. Now, I'm not a hunter. Never claimed to be. But I'm smart enough to know I don't, that you don't set a trap and then just wait there. Here, rabbit. You set that trap. Then you get where it can't see you. And you watch and wait. That's what the enemy does. He sets a trap. And I'm going to tell you. Make no mistake, we, we, our enemy is not dumb. He is smart, and he sets the trap that he knows you'll fall for. I mean, the enemy's not going to tempt me to go rob a bank. The enemy's not even going to tempt me to go out and, 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 and see where I can score next hit. That's not where he tempts me. He knows my weaknesses. 
and he knows the traps are set, and, and we've got to fight for our freedom. Let's go back. I want to read a different version of 2 Corinthians. In fact, two different versions. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 5. We talked about strongholds. Paul says, we are human, but we don't wage war like humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds, the lies of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Look at how J.B. Phillips says it. The truth is that although, of course, we lead normal human lives, the battle we are fighting is on the spiritual level. The very weapons we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds, the enemy's lies. Our battle is to bring down every deceptive fantasy and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. Guys, we are not fighting against flesh and blood. It would be a lot easier if we could just go punch it out. But that's not the case. So we've got to use God's weapons. God's weapons destroy strongholds. God's weapons tear down, tears down addictions. Now, I know when you think when I talk about God's weapons, hey, the, the sword of the spirit, those things are vital in your fight. Can I give you some of the different weapons that I think you really need to look at? You want to break free? You want, here's a weapon for freedom. Irrational obedience. Can we be honest? We serve an irrational God. I mean, when it comes, to, he's not rational. I said this a couple of weeks ago. God doesn't have opinions. He's just right. Like God doesn't say, well, let me give you my opinion on this. Oh, God says, this is the way you do it. This is the right way. So we serve him. I, you know, Kelly, what do you mean irrational? Anybody remember the story of Abraham? When God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac? And so... I can't even imagine what's going on in Abraham's mind right now. God, this seems cruel. But i got to obey you. And see, we know the outcome that God provided a ram that he didn't. Abraham didn't know that. Abraham's like, my rag, I just, I just got to be obedient. I don't understand it. But here I go. Anybody remember the disciples, the rational obedience? I mean, what is rational about Jesus being up there? He's the son of God. Yeah, you can walk on water. What's rational about Jesus? Said, oh, you want to walk? Come on out here during this storm and wave. And what's rational about you? Said, okay, and putting your foot on the side of that boat and just take it off. Nothing rational about that. Well, Kelly's son. He may have sunk, but I'll tell you, he's the only person besides Jesus that can say he took three or four steps on water. Irrational obedience. What about irrational obedience when God asked his one and only son to go pay somebody else's debt with his life? Irrational. Irrational. Our irrational God requires irrational obedience. Keller, what, what do you mean? What does that look like? God may be saying to some of you, and in fact, I, I feel he is, that group of friends you've been hanging with, it's time to separate yourself from them. But God, they'll, they'll, think, they'll think this or that. They'll think, think listen, here's the, here, let me tell you, because I can tell, come on, they're going to call me Mr. Miss Holy Roller. Holy Roller, listen, the issue is not what they may call you. 
The issue is your freedom from this addiction that has got a stronghold on your life. And the truth is, is you're do, you do good, but when you get around this group of friends, hell comes back into your life. God may be speaking to some of you that relationship. You know it's ungodly. You know it's not right. You need to text them right now and tell them it's over. It's done. That's irrational. I know. You want to be free? You want to be free? I told this story at the 9 a.m. and didn't even ask Zion to tell it. He's my son, so I'm not going to ask him again. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, he's been living down in Birmingham. He works at... Uh, part-time at a coffee place there, Caveat. And he said, he, he had asked a girl out. And I said, listen, listen, let me, I know this is new to you. Ask some questions before you ask those girls out. Because there's some crazy ones out there. <laughs> Now's not the time to amen. <laughs> She's not, she wasn't crazy, but he said we went out you know, and had a good date. He said, Dad, she was Good looking. Of course she was. My son don't date ugly girls. I don't date ugly girls. I didn't marry an ugly girl. I don't date girls. Period. Let me clear that up. I'm there. Let me clear that up. 28 years of still rocking it. So, uh, but he said the conversation when they were out on their date went to her faith and what she believed. And he said, I found out she really didn't believe like I believe. In fact, she was agnostic. And he said, well, she told me that she was okay, you know, being in a relationship with someone that believed like I believe. I had to tell her, well, I'm not okay being in a relationship with someone that believes that way. And you may say, Kelly, that's wrong. I'm going to tell you, no. What he's doing is he's guarding himself, setting up safeguards for the life he wants out from that. I'm going to tell you, if it's some of you young ladies and young men, if you quit settling for the first little thing that swiped right on you, come on. Or did I go the wrong way? Because I don't know. <laughs> Left, right. That said, hey, whatever. You might find yourself in a godly relationship if you were a little more picky with what you went out with. Mm, that's good. God may be telling some of you do plastic surgery on those credit cards. Little Dave Ramsey reference. Some of y'all need to do that. God may be telling some of you to get accountability program uh, or an app on your phone or computer. You know they're out there? There's programs out there that you can uh, get your accountability partner, and it will either email them uh, daily or we, however you set it up. That'll tell you where you've been on the internet browser that week how quick you're going to go to big butts or us if you know buddy's going to be looking at it <laughs> you might be thinking mm, don't want him getting this email <laughs> telling you accountability in your life is important it's important it's vital i'm telling you you want to truly break free irrational obedience and i'm going to hurry this up because i really want us to dance and see people free today second thing you got to get some full confidence in his word. I'm going to tell you, the word of God is powerful. 
It is we've forgotten how powerful his word is. We've forgotten that his word says he can heal cancer. He can restore marriages. He can set people free. And we've got to get confidence that when he says it in his word, it's true. It's what he means. That, that hey, I can overcome anything. I, that, that I'm an overcomer. And I, we got to get it. His word says, in all things, I'm a more than a conqueror. His word says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. His word says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. God's word is a weapon. Memorize it. Get it in you. Internalize it. Third thing you got to do, learn to say no to yourself. Boy, we don't like to hear no, do we? Paul says, the war is waged in its mind. In other words, when in your mind it says, hey, get another slice of pie. No. No. Hey, hey, go to this website. No. No. We've got to learn some self-discipline, guys. It's easy for us to look at a drug addict, alcoholic, or someone addicted to pornography and think, why don't they just stop? Why can't they stop? But we don't see it with our own addictions. Let me be truthful. I need to be about 35 pounds lighter than what I am. So I don't have it all together. And I've got to get to the place where I say, no, Kelly. No. How many are good on Mondays? Man, you think Monday, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to get in the gym. It's going to be go time. By Monday afternoon, you're scooping out the last remaining things in your moose tracks. We've got to learn to say no to ourselves. We've got to just, here, here's what I know, and this is not in your notes, but I recommend you writing it down. What you starve will die. What you feed will thrive. What you starve, start saying no. And it's going to be tough, but the more you say no, the easier it becomes. I'm telling you guys, we've got to learn some self-discipline. Learn to say no. And the last thing, last weapon. We got to learn to pray militantly. I mean, pray. Use prayer as a weapon. One of the things Melody said in her video was, "I learned to pray through the cravings. I learned to pray through that. The cravings didn't just go away. The desires don't just go away." I'm telling you, some of you are going to have to, to use prayer as a weapon and learn and start fighting for your life and get vision and shout your prayers to God. God, you said, by your stripes I am healed. God, you said that I am more than a conqueror. I'm just, Pastor Tim said one time, somebody asked him, why does he pray loud sometimes? Because he's in a fight for his life. Because he's being militant with his prayers. Sometimes you've got to say, God, give me strength to not eat like I want to eat. God, give me strength to, to stay, to, to not put myself in positions with my girlfriend or boyfriend where things usually end up going wrong. God, give me strength to say no. Tell him, militant prayer. God, give me strength to cut all ties and delete contacts that are in my phone knowing where I can get it when I want it. I'm telling you, there are those here today, you are in a fight for your life. You are in a fight for your sanity. You're in a fight for your marriage, for your relationships. You're in a fight. And until you acknowledge, some of you are in a fight for your health. One of the things me and my brothers got together after 
past, or when we were, actually it wasn't even the past, say mom had just kind of started, and, and my older brother said, he said, guys, this should be a wake-up call to us. That we've got to start treating our bodies better. We've got to start eating better. Exercise. And then, if God chooses for something else, at least I can say I did. I took care of my body. I took care of the temple that he gave me. Some of you are in a fight for your life there. Some of you are in a fight for your freedom because if something doesn't change, you're going to be in jail or worse, dead. You know, she talked about the multiple ODs. I know my brother Casey OD'd at least twice that I know of. Thank God that he made it. Can I tell you, if I'm being honest, there's 10 times more that don't make it. And today here at What's of Our Church, we offer hope. You can break free. You can be free. It's a process, but you can be free. Stand with me across the street.